Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Journalism, a channel of the New Books Network. My name is Yakir Englander, your host for this episode. Today we will discuss a book on hills in the Middle East, published in Hebrew in 2020 in Pardes Publication House in Haifa. On Hills in the Middle East is the first book of Ksenia Svetlova, an Israeli journalist of Russian origin who covered the Middle East extensively during the last two decades. Svetlova takes us on a journey to Hezbollah-dominated parts of Beirut, refugee camps in Gaza, Gaddafi, Libya, and the revolutionary squares of the Arab Springs. She describes the fateful events that had changed the face of the Middle East, such as a U.S. invasion to Iraq or the second Palestinian intifada rebel and disengagement from Reza from a unique point of view of female reporter and explains the process that culminated in revolutions, armed conflicts, or peace agreements. On Hills in the Middle East ties together first-hand impressions, rare interviews with key figures such as Yasser Arafat and Sheikh Ahmed Yassin, the founder of Hamas, and experts analysis of developments in the Middle East. Ksenia Svetlova is an Israeli journalist, researcher of the Middle East and writer. She was born in Moscow and grew up in Jerusalem. Ksenia has covered the Middle East extensively during 13 years, contributed to the BBC, Jerusalem Post and other media outlets. Between 2015 to 2019, she served as a member of the Israeli government. She currently serves as a senior research fellow at the Institute for Policy and Strategy at the IDC Herzliya and runs a program for Israeli Middle East relations at Mitzvim Institute for Regional Foreign Policy. Ksenia, welcome to the New Books Network. It's a gift to have you here. Thank Um, you so much and thank you for having me. Thank you. So let's start with the title. The title of this fascinating book is Reporting the Middle East on High Heels. And in this interview, I would love to speak about what does it mean to report in the Middle East as an Israeli from a Russian-speaking TV network on heels. And I want to start with maybe a story because the book is full with incredible stories. And I would love to start maybe with a chapter that touched me in a very personal way because of its complexity. So you're going and you meet with Ahmed Yassin that I, I will ask you to introduce him in a, in a, in a second to share with us more. Um, one of the prominent Palestinian leaders in, um, in, in, in Gaza and someone that is the enemy in a way of, the, of is, many Israelis, we look at him as an enemy, um, maybe 
a freedom leader for many Palestinians, for sure one of the prominent Muslim leaders in, in Gaza, and you're going and you meet with him. Can you please lead us into this chapter? Right. So actually the story, uh, which is, of course, very intense and at times even frightening, at least my mother was frightened after I came back and I told her where I was. Uh, but it actually starts with a funny story because, you know, uh, the year is 2004. We are still in the midst of the second uh, Palestinian intifada. Uh, the terror is still, um, you know, is a part of our daily lives. Uh, and the buses are still exploding uh, in uh, the vicinity of, uh, you know, our towns and, uh, and close to our homes, uh, close to the places where we live. Uh, and, uh, you know, few people make this way between Israel and Gaza, uh, unless they are soldiers <laughs> or settlers. And I'm neither one of them. I'm a journalist. So uh, the call that uh, surprised me and uh, the person who told me that, I, uh, uh, I had approved uh, to interview uh, Sheikh Ahmed Yassin. It came a few minutes before I started my driving uh, test. So uh, it was a long story, uh, you know, and I felt a lot of times. Uh, and this time it was definitely not meant to be because uh, just a few minutes before the test, I have this call. A guy tells me, listen, if you will be in Gaza in a couple of hours, and the drive from Jerusalem to Gaza is a couple of hours, then uh, there is a chance that uh, he will give you an interview. Uh, because I asked for many times and uh, started to ask in 2003, uh, almost six months passed since then. And uh, I uh, just leave the, my uh, instructor and the, you know, the guy the, who was supposed to test me. And I tell them, sorry, guys, I have to go to Gaza. And uh, for you know, regular Israeli going to Gaza, I think they would be less surprised. I was. I would tell them that I'm now will be on a mission to Mars. You know, I think that they will be less surprised than uh, you know Gaza. Like, what the hell is Gaza? Why do you go to Gaza? You know, suicide bombers live in Gaza, and this is more or less you know the situation. Uh, and I jump into taxi. I drive to Erez Crossing, cross the border by foot, of course. Uh, I once broke a heel in this crossing, so the name is derived from from that story. Uh, and um, I'm being taken to his house uh, in uh, the neighborhood of Sabra uh, in Gaza Strip. And I'm there and I can literally I cannot still believe that I, I, I'm, you know, I'm waiting to meet a guy who more or less sends suicide bombers into the buses that I take. I personally take. So it's not he's not some amorphical enemy that he exists, you know, in some universe and he does things that I do not entirely feel by myself as a human being. But this, I definitely feel. I, I, I lost uh, friends. I lost, I lost close friends even to terror. Uh, and uh, I, of course, I knew, uh, being an, uh, you know, an expert on Middle Eastern studies, I knew that Czech is seen. He's a spiritual leader of the Hamas. He's also the strong man in this organization. And uh, it's, uh, the decisions are being taken after consulting with him, uh, rationally, but the spirit of whether Hamas is going right now for the continuation of suicide bombings, well, then definitely, yes, he's the person to approve the policy. Uh, and here I am, I'm sitting and I'm waiting for, you know, for him to arrive. I'm waiting for quite some time. There are also other people in the waiting room. And, uh, well, you know, no internet, I'm, uh, you know, uh, uh, preparing to my interview, but still, you know, I'm still a little bit bored already. And then I hear some, uh, you know, military helicopters that are flying just above uh, the neighborhood. And I'm thinking, you know, just, you know, connecting the dots. And I'm thinking, yes, the Israeli government actually already took the decision to eliminate, you know, this is the clean language that uh, the politicians and the army men usually use, uh, you know, vis-a-vis uh, -vis their uh, enemies, uh, you know, eliminate, uh, you know, just say kill. Um, this is what it is. Uh, and, and I thought that, well, maybe they will, you know, they will decide to eliminate him right now when I'm in his house and he's actually not at home, but I am. Do they even know that I'm here? I don't think so because I did not notify anybody. So you I do even... not notify the military that you are going to meet now with Shahar? No, 
No, no, I'm a journalist. You know, I am not supposed to notify them on every step they take. Of course, they knew I'm in Gaza because, you know, I, I'm crossing the border uh, and uh, they have the register that, you know, Xenia Svetlova is in Gaza Strip. But where is she in Gaza Strip? So, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't understand exactly how, you know, does it work and whether, you know, they know or not know that I'm inside. And I yes, I didn't, I feel very uncomfortable for even more uncomfortable than before, you know, sitting in the house of somebody who is a sworn enemy uh, of uh, my country, of my people, uh, and actually on a very personal level, my enemy, uh, because this is the guy who basically uh, formulated the policy that uh, brought to many loss of lives, including lives, lives of people that I loved and knew. Uh, such as the mother of my closest friend, Anna. So um, after some time, I'm already I lost hope that he will arrive. And they told me that they are basically uh, switching him between houses uh, in order to protect him because they knew that, well, anything can happen. And that, that's why I was a little bit worried about these helicopters. And then uh, uh, he arrives to the scene and I'm being uh, very, uh, you know, swiftly, uh, ordered uh, to put some galabia on myself because I was wearing, you know, jeans and tea and, and, and the sweater, you know, because I was not about to go to Gaza that day. Uh, usually I adopt my clothes to, to what is uh, accustomed, what is, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, what, what is the, um, you know, basically uh, people wear and women wear in the place that I'm going. But not that day. So I'm wearing this galabia. I'm trying to put the scarf on my head that I don't, I don't, I'm not practicing that quickly. And then they're just rushing me to meet him. You know, um, I'm, I, I sat with him maybe 15 or 20 minutes, not more than that. Uh, his time was very measured and there were many people waiting for him. Also simple people that wanted to take his advice uh, on, uh, you know, daily affairs, uh, not only journalists. Uh, and during these 15 minutes, I cannot say that I was really surprised by things that he said, uh, because he said more or less the same things that he was saying to all of the journalists, and he met many of, of those. But I was looking into his eyes, and and I was trying to basically also asking the question and understand what he's saying, which was not very easy, uh, because he had cerebral paralysis, and his uh, voice uh, was... Uh, uh, sometimes hard to, 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 you know, understand and comprehend. Uh, but I was also looking to his eyes and trying to understand who is this person? Who is this guy who is sitting in front of me and very calmly says, yes, we will continue fighting you. Yes, we will continue doing this to the judgment day. Uh, you know, this until this day, and it gives me chills. Uh, I do not think that I was so thrilled at the moment because I was focused on my work. But on my way back from Gaza, I, you know, I thought like, okay, today I'm you. I, I met evil. I met pure evil uh, because uh, he was speaking about civilians, civilians like myself, you know, who live in Jerusalem, ride the bus, go to their daily business. And he didn't refer to them as civilians. There were no civilians uh, for him as the leader of the Hamas. And so I think also today, as for the leaders of Hamas today, they do not differentiate between civilians and non-civilians. Everybody is a civilian. Uh, everybody is a military. Uh, because we are either, you know, members of the families of the military uh, people or, you know, we serve by ourselves in the army uh, and therefore we are part of this military machine. And although I do understand the logic of his words, but the outcome of this, that you basically have to kill everybody, you have to fight and kill and, you know, just cut the flesh uh, of your enemy. Well, you know, this was for me as somebody who supports you know, the two-state solution supports the peaceful, uh, you know, resolution of the conflict between our uh, nations. Uh, it was, as for the human being, as for myself as a journalist, uh, it was very difficult to hear this and uh, to, to experience this. So thank you so much. And so many questions are coming even from this um, short and, and short story. And I want to, to walk a few steps with you and to learn about um, about your work and about your observation. So maybe we will start with the fact that you are a journalist, but you are an Israeli journalist, and you are an Israeli journalist who the main audience are Russian speakers, immigrants to Israel. 
right? And I wonder if you can um, say a little bit more about, because when we think about journalists, I think many of the listeners, myself too, we think that journalists would like to be objective, or at least this will be the attitude when they come to, to meet with people. But then I'm asking myself, how, Xenia, you can be objective or even try to when you are part of this conflict and you're part, as you said, you you lost Anna as a friend and so many Israelis who are there in the conflict. Um, of course, if you would be a Palestinian journalist, it will be exactly the same just from the other side. So I wonder if you can elaborate for us a little bit more about what does it mean to be a journalist in a conflict that it's your conflict? You know, it's interesting that you ask about this because I remember that I think one of my first interviews that I've done is in my capacity as a TV journalist and a reporter for Arab Affairs in Channel 9, it was an interview with the head of Al Jazeera in Jerusalem, Walid al-Omari. Uh, and I made a report by then about the phenomenal success of Al Jazeera. Uh, by 2002, uh, nobody was calling it the Arab CNN already. I think I uh, think things were much a little bit clearer clearer than in the beginning. Uh, it was also known that there is a influence of certain uh, organization that is called the Muslim Brotherhood. You know, on this organ on this channel, uh, and also okay, okay, it's funded by Qatar. What that, what does it mean? Uh, what is the influence of uh, you know uh, this uh, connection between politics and uh, journalism? And I asked Walid, who I respect very much, and I also like him a lot as a you know person as a human being. I asked him whether journalists can be objective, any journalist. And he told me no, that he did not believe in 100% of objectivity in nobody because each and every one of us, we are a product of our countries, of our cultures. If we are Westerners, then, you know, we are products of the Western culture that is, of course, not leaning, uh, you know, to the West, uh, to the East, to the, you know, Orient. Uh, and uh, if we are coming from the East, then, you know, it also, of course, uh, there are uh, grounds in us, there are fundament that is entirely different uh, from that of the Western journalists. We will see things differently. I think that also, you know, being a woman uh, makes my journalism a little bit different. Uh, I also, you know, named my book in this very, I think, uh, kind of uh, female uh, title, some people say to me that, you know, it's, wow, okay, men couldn't, of course, uh, name this book. So it's clear that it's a woman who wrote it. But I wanted to make it clear because I think that our perspective is different. I think that a mother to children also see things differently than a person who is uh, childless or child-free. It's not necessarily better or worse. It's different. Uh, so the same is also with the region. So being um, being a member, active member, basically of this conflict, because yes, I live here. Yes, my life is affected uh, by uh, by this conflict. Uh, and yes, I lost uh, you know mother of my closest friend uh, to to this. Uh, also, some other people that I knew very closely uh, to this horrible uh, conflict. Uh, of course, it has impact uh, on myself, um, but still. I think that even if we are not 100% objective, I think we can try, and this is what our job is actually, to try to feel as much uh, obligation to the truth, to the facts that you see, and uh, to present it to your viewers. This is what I try to do during my work. Uh, so uh, um, Sometimes, uh, you know, uh, you know, when there was a terrorist attack, for example, so uh, I didn't go to the scene of the attack itself. I went to the family uh, of the supposed terrorist uh, to understand what is going on on the other side. Uh, are things exactly like the official propaganda say they are? Uh, what is the what is the justification for this uh, act? What stands behind it? How is it interpreted by the society, you know, and by people who were very close? And you know what? No, it was not all the same. It was uh, not not neither the uh, attackers themselves, you know, felt the same and acted the same. Uh, neither also their families, you know, were the same family that was just uh, gleaming and uh, happy, you know, about the killing of Jews and so on. No, some of them were very unhappy. And I can tell you that one of the, I think, most powerful encounters that I had, it was also, by the way, in Gaza, and it was with the father of an eight-year-old kid 
who died as a result of bombing, of shelling uh, of Beit Hanun, uh, which is a village close to the border with Israel in northern part of Gaza, uh, of, by, the Israeli, uh, by the Israeli army. So the house was shelled. Uh, late, later, you know, the idea of spokesperson said that it happened uh, because they wanted to hit uh, the Kasama rocket uh, launchers uh, that were stationed. Indeed, they were stationed very closely to the house, 200 meters, you know, or even less. But this girl died. And you can, what can you say, you know, to a father who just lost his kid? Now, when I'm a mother by myself to three daughters, well, you know, so uh, I would not be able to, uh, you know, any justification, any, you know, apology, you know, nothing, nothing works. But this father, during the funeral and also later when he was talking to relatives and also to journalists, he said the thing that I will remember for the rest of my life. He said, I want my daughter to be the last one. This is what I want. And the ability to bring this truth to your viewers, you know, not to cut it in the editing, but to bring it in order to listen. These are the people that right now we are in conflict with them. Yes, there is a real conflict, but are they animals? Are they, you know, like wild beasts that just want to kill us and to, to continue to fight with us forever? Some of them, yes, this is what Czech Hissin represented. But others, they are just normal human beings who suffer and bleed just like us, and like Shaylok, and uh, and uh, I just was remembering this movie, the Aventi Popolo, uh, you know, with uh, all of these powerful symbols of uh, you know blood and unity and humanity. And I think this is what we also can do as journalists, even if at many times I felt I felt, for, for example, when I was in Beirut, in Syria, and I wish I would be just you know not from here. I, I wish I would be not a, a person from the Middle East uh, to feel. How does it look like when you are covering some story that is not related personally to you and uh, to your family? Yes, I wish that I would experience that, but no, <laughs> I am who I am. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yeah but in, in because um you because you um the audience uh, that you speak um are where um, and many times are russians and because sometimes you fly by russia um some almost funny moments in the book are happening when um you meet with journalists from the middle east and they are not even aware um, that you are from Israel because officially you came from from Russia or from another state, and I wonder what's happening in these meetings with different uh, journalists. Like, what is the dialogue that you have, or and where is the conflict is coming into that? And maybe there are some moments that you understand that because you're a journalist, at the end of the day you are from the same club, and there is something that united you. Uh, well, indeed, very funny moment happens at some points, uh, but I have to tell that um, uh, I only uh, was, you know, saying that I'm from Russia when I felt that my life can be in danger uh, or that some, you know, frightening things can happen to me if people will know that I'm from Israel. So by the end of the day, you know, I'm not coming here to, uh, you know, defend anybody's narrative. I'm coming as a journalist to be a fly on the wall. This is, I think, what the journalists should be doing, uh, to see, you know, uh, how people are living, uh, what is happening at very critical uh, points of time, you know, whether there are revolutions, uh, the funeral of Rafik al-Hariri in Lebanon, uh, and, uh, you know, Intifada, of course, and uh, other occasions. So um, 
first of all, it was also very funny to hear from people ideas about Russia, you know, what Russia stands for, what does it represent? So if I had a dollar, or you know what, even shekel, forget about dollar, for every time that I heard from people in the Middle East that they wish that Russia would come back uh, again, you know, strong and confident, uh, and they are praying for the bipolar world to come back again, I would be a rich person by now because I heard it every single time, especially in Egypt, uh, where still there is still very strong uh, pro-Russian sentiment. I think also because of the tourism, but also because of the historic memory. And I actually was asked uh, many times whether my grandfather, for example, worked on the construction of the Aswan Dam. And, uh, you know, both of my grandfathers were Jews. They would not be left anywhere closer, <laughs> close to the yeah. construction of Aswan Dam. Uh, it was Soviet Union with all of the anti-Semitism and so on. Uh, but yes, uh, they, of course, uh, you know, the idea was that uh, if you are coming from Russia, then you are, you are probably, you are for our side, you are supporting our side and not the other side of the conflict. Okay. Although Russia has a, a very cordial relations right now with the Israeli establishment, uh, with the Israeli government and so on, but somehow it was interpreted in the Middle East differently. Uh, and uh, then, you know, it was, I, I was also always like, I wish I could tell them, guys, I'm not, you know, I'm not a Russian, I'm a Israeli journalist. Does it really make a difference? Because I'm still is the same person. Uh, I also had a Russian passport at the time, yes, until I was elected to the Knesset. But does it really matter what kind of passport do I have? You know, if I had a different passport, would you talk to me differently? And the answer is yes. People will talk to you differently. When they will hear that you are, you know, somebody they, who they um, attribute to the enemy's camp or that you are somebody who is not only neutral. I mean, you know, Russia is not uh, Holland, you know, for example, yes, but uh, it's also perceived as the friend of the Arabs. Okay, so I think this is, uh, this is interesting. And this is also, I think, led me to many, you know, interesting uh, conclusions, you know, about the region, about how things are being perceived and how quickly everything changes, because when Russia decided to actually actively uh, uh, interfere into the Syrian conflict, then we very quickly we saw the Russian flags that were burning all across the Middle East, because uh, people uh, refused uh, to accept uh, this uh, intervention uh, into for the sake of Bashar Assad, who was slaughtering uh, the Sunni Muslims, you know, and so on. And uh, they, uh, of course, the also, the context changed immediately. And uh, at that moment, also, I knew that it was not very safe. Also, <laughs> I was not a journalist already. I was a politician at the time. But I knew that for many of my friends who were, you know, strolling the Middle East and uh, traveling with Russian or even Ukrainian and even some with Polish passports, uh, some of them were attacked, uh, you know, because now they were with their own camp. Uh, so uh, it's uh, all about the images, uh, perceptions uh, and Sometimes it doesn't really matter who is the real you in all of this story. What do you think? Because the passport talks for yourself. The flag that you are, you know, supposedly working under, it's talking for you. Uh, and um, um, I think it, even now, I think uh, for, you know, for many uh, chatting online, for example, and then discovering, you know, that the guy that you are speaking with, he's Israeli or the girl she's in Australia, they were like, wow, oh my God, are you like Mossad agent or something? Uh, people immediately think that if you are speaking Arabic, then you must be a Mossad agent. Well, I, I uh, took my Arabic classes in Hebrew University. <laughs> I never was involved in any security agency, actually didn't even serve in the army. But I'm still getting this whole package of, uh, you know, like, okay, who who is Xenia? Who, uh, who stands behind her, perhaps? And there is also a lot of conspiracy theories that are not dying. Uh, they are being inherited, I think, by uh, next generations and so on. So, yeah, this is interesting. So, in a way, people try to be honest, um, but at the end of the day, sometimes they see you as a representer and they will speak to you according to how they perceived you. Do I understand it right? Yes, exactly. Yes. And, uh, you know, uh, even, you know, for my Palestinian friends who know exactly, you know, uh, you know, my story, who am I and for how many years I live in Israel, that I'm an Israeli, actually. And uh, 
uh, that I also believe in the Zionist idea, you know, which doesn't make me uh, somebody that wants to expand on their on their expense and to build, you know, my country on their expense and so on. Uh, but still, they perceive me as different, you know, because I was not born here. I was not born in this land. And I can tell you also that I do feel that although I'm an Israeli, my perception of them is different. My perception of the Arabs is different. I was not brought up, you know, hating Arabs. Not at all. Uh, I was interested uh, since my early childhood in ancient Egypt, then in modern Egypt. Uh, then I decided when I was already in Israel to study Arabic in the university. And I was actually... Uh, I would say even verbally attacked <laughs> for this choice in the university itself by somebody who registered me to Middle Eastern studies. And he asked me like, but why, why would you, you know, want to study Arabic? Can't you like study a normal language? And I asked her, I was like astonished. I was like, mm. what, no, what do you mean normal language? Yeah. She said, oh, you know, normal language like French or Italian, you know, one of these, you know, classical European languages. And I was like thinking about it seconds and that I told her, listen, if you can prove to me that we share a border with France, uh, Italy or Spain, then perhaps I will reconsider. But we are bordering with Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Egypt and the uh, Palestinians. So I think it's a smart choice to study Arabic. We have to understand the, each other. Yes. So uh, and much more Arabs understand Hebrew than we do. I'm talking about, of course, Israelis and Palestinians, not about, for example, Libyans and uh, Israelis. Yes. So. So, yeah, you know, I think but again, you know, I think my interest, it was very, it was very clean. It was very uh, different. It was not militarized. You know, I did not study Arabic in order to know my enemy, you know, uh, because also because maybe because I was growing up in the 90s. I went to university in the 90s, soon after the Oslo Accords. And there was this atmosphere of optimism that things can work out between us. Yeah. So then it's bring me to the next part of the title. Um, reporting the Middle East on high heels. So you mentioned that there is that there is a place as a journalist to become to, to be a, um, a woman journalist. And I wonder if you can speak more about that. Like when you compare, I mean, you have um, um, many men um, journalists, and I wonder what it means to be a female journalist. Um, like um, how you perceived when you ask for, I, even before you even meet with the leaders that you are going to meet, like it's like how you perceived by the people that you ask them to meet with the leaders. How many other women journalists, maybe from the Middle East, you you meet? Uh, this was something because many of the stories is about journalists who are men or perceived as men. So I wonder about that. And also, as you mentioned before, you said something fascinating about that. Maybe because you're a woman maybe something about the dialogue is also more feminine. And I wonder about these elements, if you can share with us. Yes. Uh, well, um, first of all, I have to tell you that uh, I never knew when I was growing up back then in Moscow, uh, that uh, the thing that I wanted to do in my life, and I wanted to be a journalist since like maybe nine or 10 years old, uh, this is something that women should not be doing. You know, that uh, it's a prerogative of a man uh, to go to explore cultures, to travel somewhere else, also to cover, you know, if you need, then you have to cover the armed conflicts. Uh, this is part of the deal, of course. And uh, when I uh, was already a journalist by myself in Israel, I understood that actually there are very little women around me, you know, uh, doing the same that I'm doing. And it was strange for me because I thought, you know, like, why? Why is that? Um, and uh, I think that maybe partly it's because of the still militaristic society that we are living uh, in Israel. And um, uh, when you're covering the Middle East, when you're covering the Arab affairs, somehow, even if you are not uh, described as the military journalist, we have the army correspondent uh, title here in every um, uh, editorial room. You will always have the army correspondent. You will have the Arab affairs correspondent. But who are the Arab affairs correspondent? Many of them are also coming from the unique, uh, you know, uh, units uh, from the army who were dealing with intelligence, 
uh, and the analysis, uh, you know, of the Middle East. So uh, uh, many of them are men. <laughs> you know, the majority of the people until very recently uh, who were working in these units were men. Uh, so uh, it was inevitable that, you know, after that, when they're going and they're, you know, searching for a job for themselves, uh, then you will have more men than women. I didn't know about this, you know, so I came from the same uh, kind of a career um, channel that uh, I would do the same if I would stay in Russia. I would go to the university, study, you know, journalism and perhaps also the language, the Arabic language, uh, and then try to, you know, uh, you know, search for some job. And this is also what I did in Israel. Uh, only later I understood that it was very uh, unique and unusual uh, for, you know, country where, you know, I was making my career. But actually in field, I met many women journalists uh, and many of them were Arab women journalists everywhere, everywhere from Lebanon to Gaza. Uh, actually, there were two stars uh, at the time when I was uh, very active, you know, uh, as a reporter. There were two stars on Al Jazeera. Heba Akila, whom I met, of course, correspondent of Al Jazeera in Gaza, and Shirin Abu Akla. Uh, he was, she was reporting from Ramallah and this Jerusalem. Uh, so, and it was like normal, you know, so, so they're working and also I'm working. So I, I never thought that it was something that is peculiar. Um, I only began to understand that there is some problem, not so much for the people whom I meet, but the people who, for whom I work. Uh, when I had my twins, you know, so they are 12 years old today. And I was, uh, you know, in the, you know, uh, already quite a successful journalist with quite a few, you know, things that I've done, you know, uh, you know, quite a record. Uh, and suddenly I understood that uh, after, you know, I had children, uh, then people for whom I work, you know, they have this idea that, oh, perhaps Xenia will not do these risky things that she used to do when, uh, you know, she didn't have children, okay? Uh, and uh, perhaps she should do be doing something else, perhaps not the same job that she used to do before. And it was the only job that I wanted to do. You know, I didn't want to be an anchor or a chief editor or, you know, any of these things because I liked what I'm doing and I was good at it. Uh, so it took some time also to prove to, to them, you know, that, you know, I'm the same person. Yes, I have children now. Yes, my hours of work can change, you know, uh, in accordance to, you know, the family needs. But I am still the same person and I'm able to also to continue getting scoops and so on. So a woman journalist is different from a man because she has to consider things when she's going to some place that is considered to be dangerous, you know, risky uh, if it's uh, clothes wise, you know, so I don't think that men journalists are, you know, actually deliberating with their friends, you know, and family members like, OK, what should I wear? And not in the sense of should I wear a red shirt or a green shirt, but should I wear a scarf? Should I cover my hair to be more protected? Also to be less, um, perhaps uh, to have less of a presence and uh, less noticeable. OK, so this is the key point, I think. Yes, I covered my hair at most of the times when I traveled to Cairo, even before the revolution, because about 75% of Egyptian women do. And uh, I felt that if I will be just going with, you know, blonde hair and everything, especially, uh, I will be, you know, uh, you know, a source of uh, unwanted attraction. Uh, I will not be able to do my job. Uh, and I also wanted to feel safer, you know, so, so I put the hijab. Uh, not uh, all... Basically, my idea was that I'm coming to them, not they're coming to me. So I'm a feminist, but if, if I'm going to some place that have specific kind of rules uh, and uh, norms, then I should respect them because, uh, again, I'm coming to them and nobody invited me, actually, yes, to, to come there. Um, it, as for people that uh, I interviewed, and I think that um, for many of them, they are used to meet journalists, uh, women journalists, because they're meeting a lot of foreign women journalists, they are meeting Arab women journalists. So I think it's becoming more of a norm. Actually, I think that today in the Arabic channel, we have more women correspondents than men sometimes. But if you are looking for the top managers and editors in chief, then still, it's still dominated very much by men. But this is also the, you know, I think that in the United States, in Europe uh, and in Israel, okay, you still have uh, more men uh, than women in the leading positions. Um, and the last thing that perhaps that I can say, sometimes uh, it was clear that I will not be able to get somewhere because I'm a woman and this place is closed for women, uh, which was, of course, a bummer. Uh, 
uh, but in the uh, end of the day, can you give I us an example, Xenia? Yes. So, for example, uh, we heard at some point also in Gaza, by the, by the way, so for some reason, all of my examples today are from Gaza. Um, we heard about some boy uh, who was the wonder boy of uh, the Hamas. He memorized the whole of the Quran when he was like, I don't know, five. And he became a preacher when he was only 11 or 12. And I wanted to go to one of the mosques and to hear him preach because it was, I think it was short time before the Palestinian elections in 2006. I wanted to understand whether Hamas is using the preachers, the imams, uh, also as tools for political propaganda, uh, whether, you know, it's present there or not. So, of course, I will, was not be, I would not able to join, you know, to the, to be there, uh, you know, at uh, uh, the women, um, at the men's quarter. Um, I sent my uh, cameraman there and I was sitting with the women in the smaller part in the women's quarter uh, and actually it was the most fascinating thing because I was listening to them chatting you know my Arabic, my Arabic is uh, quite good I mean uh, okay it's uh, not a native language for me or it's uh, actually my fourth language that I studied uh, but, uh, but still you know it's good enough to understand what they are talking among themselves and they were talking about basically everything apart from, you know, the uh, issues that were discussed by this young preacher. They were talking about the hardships of the daily life. They were talking about the uh, upcoming marriages, you know, of their daughters, you know, sons and the economic hardships. Uh, and also a little bit about elections, but not in the context of politics, but how it will affect their daily lives. They were talking about their fears and the hopes, you know, and sometimes just, you know, chit chat uh, with a girlfriend, uh, because uh, this is the time when she can sit and not be preoccupied with the children or kitchen or, you know, 2000s of uh, uh, home chores. So this was fascinating. And uh, the same happened with me in Beirut uh, during the... Uh, celebrations of the Ashura commemoration, not celebration, commemorations of the Ashura. Uh, so, um, well, you know, I was again sitting with the women and um, I was surprised to see them a little bit more in control because the men were weeping like crazy and they were fainting. They were weeping, of course, for Imam Hussein, the grandchild of the prophet. And the women, because they had to care for the young children who were running here and there, and they had to know that, uh, you know, they are okay, they had to feed them. So they were kind, kind of more restrained. They showed more restraint also because it's not uh, that good for a woman to like weep publicly and so her voice uh, will be heard and so on. But this kind of nuances, you can only, you know, experience them if you are sitting with the women at the more at the at the at this point, and this is something that men would not be able to do. So I guess it, there were some moments then I felt when I felt like frustrated because I cannot go where the men are going, but I was also had the liberty to explore uh, more precisely the of the women, and I think this is great because it's being overlooked so many times. Is it something that you also brought to your audience um, in Israel? Because the book, um, I mean, most of the interviews that we, I mean, I think or all of them are with men. And I wonder about this unique place that you have the entrance to the women and to bring the voices of the women, as you just shared now. Um, how much it's part of the narrative that you are bringing back to the audience in Israel? It was always very important for me to bring the voice of the women. And yes, while it is right that uh, most of the high-profile interviews that I uh, made, there are with men, Yasser Arafat, Sheikh Ahmad Yassin, the leaders of the Muslim Brotherhood, because what can you do? They are men. Uh, but the, there are also many voices in the book also. And of course, you know, why, when during my journalistic work, uh, when I brought the just the, you know, voices from the street of ordinary women, uh, I have this, uh, you know, story, which I absolutely love about Tunisia, uh, where I, uh, not only that I, had no difficulty to find women to interview, but they were basically whisking the microphone from me. And they were saying, yes, I want to talk. And this was not only, you know, secular, you know, uh, women from the high end, but there were also women in scarves that were representing the Anahda party, the Islamist party. Uh, it just, I think, indicated the degree of liberty that people in this country felt. Uh, also, you know, between themselves, 
uh, within their society and towards myself, a foreign journalist, uh, that they felt absolutely, you know, you know, positive and at ease uh, with the presence of reporter, talking to reporter. This was absolutely wonderful. One of the personal stories that I can share about women is about a young girl in Egypt who escorted me out of the city of dead where I got completely lost. Uh, and uh, she just took my hand and uh, she, we walked for like, you know, good 30 minutes out of the city of dead. There were no taxis around, no anybody. He just brought me to the one of the central streets. And then I found out that she had to go exactly the opposite way. But she was wow. kind enough to, yeah, yes. And she didn't beg for money. I gave her some, but she didn't beg for money. She didn't ask for this. She just did it because uh, she felt that I was, I was lost and uh, she was kind. You know, that was it. You know, so I think that is the most representative story. It's much more interesting, actually, than this, uh, you know, uh, interviews with the uh, almighty uh, leaders and uh, mm. imams and, uh, you know, yeah. I think it's also give audience of, of Israelis to understand that not everything that is happening there on the other side is only about, you know, the military and the conflict. But the, what I love about the book, one of the many things is how much it's about humanity. You know, you meet with people and you bring the stories, the flavors, the complications. And it led me to, to my next question. And I want to come back to your meeting with Sheikh Ahmad Yassin. Um, Ahmad Yassin was a Sheikh. He was a religious leader. Um, many people say that the, that the best way to do peace in the Middle East um, will be if the religious people in Israel um, will meet maybe with the religious people in, in Palestine and they will have some common language around the values of Islam and of Judaism. And I, when I think about Sheikh Ahmed Yassin, um, and maybe it will be a personal part, but um, my, I grew up in an ultra-Orthodox community in Israel, um, and so t TV is not part of the narrative. And I remember when, I think it was my mother, when she saw a picture of Sheikh Ahmed Yassin, she said like, oh, he looks like a Kabbalistic uh, rabbi, you know, a Jewish mystical Mizrahi rabbi, like uh, Rabbi Kaduri, uh, Sali, and others. And maybe it's true. Maybe, I mean, it's true. And, and I wonder from your experience, first about this role, and also one more thing that you said that really struck me, and I wonder how a person that, as you said, when you come to interview Sheikh Ahmed Yassin, people came to him to get religious advices, which means that they saw him as a person that they want to come to get maybe compassion, to get love, to get relationship with Allah, and then you say, I looked at his eyes and I saw hate. And this confusion, I wonder if you can share with us more. Well, you know, I also have some, um, I would say, affiliation with the, at least with the religious uh, educational system, because I studied in religious school uh, in Israel. Uh, it's a long story. Uh, it was basically a result of uh, governmental policy of putting as much of uh, uh, new immigrants uh, to yeshivas and religious schools. And uh, the uh, religious Zionist party, uh, Mafdal, uh, was in the Ministry of uh, Education back then, with Blun Hammer. Uh, so th then it happened. I'm not sorry for that. I'm actually happy for that because uh, I think I learned things that I would never study uh, elsewhere. Uh, and uh, I, I think it completes me as a person, uh, as a Jew also. Uh, but I also, I think I'm grateful because as a journalist later on, it gave me some leverage because I do understand, you know, where are these people coming from? Um, from what kind of postulates or from what kind of motives, uh, are, you know, are they coming and they are acting? Uh, so it was easier for me, for example, to cover the disengagement from Gaza which was also, I think it was very powerful. It was very painful for the Israeli society, although we are talking only about, about 8,000 people. Uh, and uh, I also described the sense of freedom that many Gazans felt the day that the, uh, also the settlers and also the uh, military people were gone because they were just able to drive 
freely from north to south and from south to north. And we're just driving all day long <laughs> in the huge... Yeah, the chapter is passing, uh, like visiting right. family members. And, yes, and, and, and go we're, just, we're just driving, you know, right. we're just driving. Just Things driving. You yes. and I can do easily if we go out from the house and these people were not able to do this. But I understand those. I understand right. also the people who felt because they were taught for the, you know, most part of their lives uh, that uh, the land is sacred uh, that uh, you can also, uh, you know, you can shed blood for your own blood, you know, for the sake of the land. Uh, and this is something that you cannot bargain on. So I think that here lies basically the danger uh, and not the benefit uh, for any future compromise. I think it should be detached completely from religion, because when you start to talk about religion, then uh, it's uh, easier to find uh, the points of disagreement than common ground. Uh, yes, we are talking about Abrahamic re religions. Yes, now I think it's um, uh, espe especially uh, there is a focus on it uh, due to the Abrahamic courts uh, that were signed, you know, with the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia. But uh, if we are talking about religious leaders, then they are not only religious leaders; they are also political leaders. There is a lot of politics in all of that. So, therefore, for example, we are talking about something else altogether. The recent visit of the Pope to Iraq. Uh, I felt that there was no impact. You know, it was very, it was great visit. It was uh, emotionally, it was, you know, amazing see him in the ruins of uh, Mosul, you know, and praying here, there in the church. Uh, it's all very important. But he, will he change the course of events? Will this visit actually, you know, influence uh, uh, and end the sectarianism, for example, in Iraq? Or will it protect the Christians of Iraq? I really doubt that. I hope that it will, but, uh, you know, something tells me that it will not uh, happen. So in the same fashion, I actually I engaged in many meetings between religious people from both sides and also from free sides, Christians and Muslims and uh, uh, and uh, Jews, of course, uh, you know, and in these meetings, usually, yes, uh, you know, the organizers uh, uh, tie, you know, and uh, they arrange uh, all of these meetings so you can find the common uh, motives. But what about motives that are not common to us, you know? Uh, uh, what about the issues that are in the center of the conflict? Jerusalem, the holy places. Well, you know, try to put, you know, a rabbi and imam uh, and let them, you know, sort out this. So this would be interesting. And never, nobody tried that because it's easier to talk about monotheism. It's easier to talk about human values. Uh, and all of that. Uh, this is great, but it will not help us, I think, to get out of the political impasse where we are today. So personally, I do hope for my country, for Israel, that it will be able to detach religion from politics. I do not see it happening in the next 10 years or so. And while I was in the Knesset, certainly, you know, I was not able to do more uh, being an opposition member, you know, to promote it, uh, to promote this idea. And I do not see any political force right now in Israel that it will be able uh, to do that. And therefore, I think that our chances to actually find a solution to way out, you know, of this mess, uh, it's uh, the chances are very slim because you will always have somebody in the right or the extreme right who will say, Oh, but this is the land of our fathers. No, we cannot give that. No, we can give, uh, uh, you know, the land of a Wakuf or the, you know, land of our fathers uh, or some uh, something sacred. Uh, as, you know, for the secular people, I think it's easier for them to find, uh, you know, uh, some kind of a compromise because when you uh, jump above this, you know, sacredness, holiness of the place, then you know, ground is only ground. We are talking security, about talking about economy, uh, things that can be actually uh, resolved somehow. But, uh, you know, when you are looking who uh, has more rights uh, on this part of land or other part of land, we can never, you know, we can never finish with this. So you think that in a way it's better to try to do this detachment between the two? Um, and, and can you maybe reflect a little bit about my second part of the question about like, how can be a person who so care about his people? And uh, I, I want to guess, I don't, I never met uh, Sheikh Ahmed Yassin, but I, I want to hope that the, the people in Gaza came to him because they loved him. So it means that they felt deep connection. And on the same way, on the same person, you have a person who so do not see the humanity of, of the Israelis, as you mentioned. 
Well, um, years after he died, uh, they continue selling these uh, keychains um, with his portrait uh, for one shekel or, you know, two shekels, which for Gazans is a lot of money, you know, because yes. we are talking about, you know, very low income. Uh, and uh, indeed, people loved him. You still have many graffitis uh, in Gaza with his, uh, you know, image. Uh, and uh, I think the Gazans also saw in him not only the religious authority, but they saw in him the semblance of weakness that is taking over the um, the power, the you know Palestinian Goliath, if you if you want, uh, because of his uh, um, um, uh, illness, because of his the cerebral paralysis, because he was moving on the wheelchair most of the time. I think they saw well, you know, in such a big body. You have such a strong spirit, and this is what they uh, this is what they uh, adored. Uh, apart from, of course, you know the you know religious advices and so on. I think that uh, it's actually not something bizarre or strange to find a religious leader who is kind to his people. After all, he started with his work from charity, charity projects, you know, for the sake of the Gazans, uh, and they. Also, people, you know, until now, they're grateful to Hamas because they established uh, kindergartens. They gave dowry to their brides, you know, and all of that. Of right. course, they mixed political Islam into all of that. It was not pure charity. Uh, but, uh, you know, for the person who gets his uh, 10 kilo of rice for Ramadan, well, okay, good enough. You know, I understand this completely. Uh, so, but uh, for this kind of leaders to just, uh, you know, use for as a political tool, the hatred, hatred, you know, you can use it also as a political tool, as a part of uh, the information war. Uh, and in the end of the day, you incite so much against the other, then you also, you know, you tr you start to believe in it. You start to believe in it yourself. Uh, after all, you've seen, unlike many guys today, who were born after the Intifada and they've never met an Israeli. You know, uh, I think it's thousands and thousands who never met an Israeli. The only saw them on TV or they saw them as snipers who are shooting at them uh, at the border, for example, but not uh, they did not see them as human beings. Yassin did meet Israelis and people who he met in jail, but also prior to that, during the 70s, who was, he was meeting the members of the military administration. He was meeting the, you know, uh, researchers and uh, he knows Israelis. He knows that he, they are not uh, Satans. Uh, they, they are not uh, diabolic or something like this, but he chose intentionally to present them in this kind of way, because uh, we are talking about politics. It's not uh, merely religion, you know? So uh, I, I, I believe that there are at some place, there are religious leaders who are not politicians, but they also lack uh, the political power. Okay, so they uh, may be very popular and so on, but uh, the moment they start to mix religion, then inevitably, you know, you become a politician uh, uh, who is also a religious uh, figure. Uh, and this is, I think, what uh, is important about Yassin. He was a leader of uh, the movement, this political Islamic movement. Uh, so he was not merely a religious leader. Uh, he was not merely a charity man. Uh, therefore, I think that uh, he somehow he accommodated, he accommodated, you know, this uh, idea and, you know, uh, when you talk about religious text, uh, I'm referring to the first question, first part of the question, you can find anything in religious text, you know. So I remember in 2002, I was translating this piece from Saudi newspaper. It was a blood libel about the holiday of Purim uh, and that the Jews, uh, you know, according to this uh, horrific article, uh, they were using of the Muslim and Christian babies in order to bake the homentation, you know, and I was reading it, it was also in the midst of the Intifada, I'm saying like, for God's sake, you know, you just, you know, putting more fuel to this, uh, to these flames. This yeah. was a Saudi newspaper, it was spread, uh, you know, uh, to many, many other uh, countries. Uh, and right now, uh, you know, other researchers, Saudi researchers, they are all about like, okay, Abrahamic religion, peace and love, we do not have any problem, you know, even Al-Aqsa is not that important for us. So it means that with politics, with the help of politics, you can interpret any text, you can write any fatwa. Uh, it doesn't matter at all, you know, what was uh, written before. Uh, somebody, uh, you know, especially in Islam, because you do not have this uh, institute of uh, Pope, you know, you can write one thing and after that you're writing another thing, you know, it's all accommodated. Thank you. So... 
we today we focus on Gaza, but actually in the book we have um, just to tell the people we have um, your visits and your interviews from Egypt and from Tripoli and from Beirut and 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 it's lead me to my to the last question. Um, Israel, is it part of the Middle East? And what and maybe help us to understand? I think that my short question hold so many layers that can be there, right? How much we are part of the Middle East? How much we are walking into becoming part of the Middle East? And how much the Middle East look at Israel? Because Sheikh Ahmed Yassin, I think that he said in, in, in the interview, he said, you do not belong there. You do not belong here. It's not, it's go back. And I wonder, is there start to be change toward Israeliness now that, you know, second, third generation of Israelis are boring in Israel? Are we starting to become part of the Middle East? Our music becoming more Middle Eastern? Our food become more? So I wonder, where are we? You know, um, uh, this is a great question, first of all. Do we have like, a, you know, five hours now to, to discuss it? <laughs> five minutes. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, I recall this fascinating discussion on our Moscow kitchen in 1991, uh, very shortly before we were about to leave, between my mother and some friends that were always uh, set to leave to Israel. Uh, we didn't know how does Israel look. You know, we didn't have any image of this is Israel. So some, you know, were arguing that Israel is more influenced by U.S., therefore it's more like U.S., and others were saying that, no, it's more like uh, Europe. Surprise, it's more like Middle East, you know, and uh, sometimes, um, you know, the Israelis do not have this luxury with, that I had to actually explore the region and to visit the many parts of it. But if they were, if they had this uh, opportunity, they would find out that many of the places in the Middle East resemble, you know, us, resemble our cities, resemble our way of life completely. You know, when I was strolling in Beirut in the Corniche uh, and uh, uh, was, you know, looking at this, uh, you know, crumbling <laughs> uh, buildings uh, that were renovated, but some of them were not. Uh, and uh, you see, you, you, you hear the sounds, uh, you have the touch of the modernity, but also the uh, ancient world here and everything. I felt like I will be ending, if I'm going to the south from Beirut, I will be ending in Tel Aviv, you know, because also the kind of freedom that the Beirutians had in how they dressed, how they acted, it resembled me a lot also, you know, the Tel Aviv, also not, even not Yafo, you know, specifically Tel Aviv. Uh, and, um, and this was great. It was, you know, this feeling that, well, yes, I know this place. I know this place. It's not foreign to me. Uh, and the, the more I travel, the more I understand how much we are part of the Middle East. And I think that also the Middle East is coming to the same conclusion, you know. So uh, what now? It's 17, eight, 17 years after the killing of Sheikh Ahmed Yassin. Uh, I can tell you that I think also many of his party members, uh, they also understand now that there is no going back. There is no pushing the Israelis back to Europe uh, and the uh, U.S. and uh, Africa and North Africa uh, and whatever, because it will never happen. These people are now, they're, you know, living in the Middle East. What worries me, Israel becomes more like a Middle East, also in sense of uh, corruption. Uh, I, would, I don't know if Levantinism is the correct term here, but uh, this kind of sense that, uh, okay, you know, we do not have... Uh, to be perfect, we just can do something, and we'll let's hope that this is will this will work. Let's hope that this will work. So this is something that also I think that is becoming more and more uh, part of our you know political culture, uh, and uh, you know otherwise. Uh, but yes, definitely the sounds. Uh, you know, we didn't even talk about, uh, you know, half of the Israeli population of the Jewish Israeli population that originated from here, you know, and in my book, I write a lot about the Jewish history that is scattered here uh, across the region. And I, I was going there and I was saying, how come in my university, when I was studying the Middle East, I never knew about it. They never taught me, you know, this part of uh, Middle Eastern history, which is also Jewish history. And it seems that Jewish, the Middle East is coming to terms that its history is also the history of the Jewish nation. And therefore you have now these projects, uh, you know, from uh, uh, Cairo to 
uh, Beirut to Dubai, establishing new synagogues, uh, repairing old synagogues, cleaning the old uh, Jewish cemeteries and so on. The Middle East is finally, I think, begins to come to terms uh, with its Jews. Uh, and uh, perhaps in the later stage, also with the state of Israel. Of course, I believe that uh, uh, only if the Palestinian-Israeli conflict will be solved, we can we we will be able to really integrate, you know, into our neighborhood. If integrate without, you know, uh, stopping being ourselves. Of course, this is what I mean. Uh, but but yes, I think that we are on our way there because it's been already over seventy years. And because, yes, because uh, we are from here after all. Uh, and uh, even those from us from us who aren't, like myself, you know, I was not born in the Middle East, but I think that uh, this is my home, uh, more the region, I mean, not only specifically the country. I feel at home in the Middle East. You know, this is the what I think is important. I feel that I'm at home here. I feel at home when I land in Cairo airport. I feel at home when I'm, uh, you know, strolling the uh, Corniche of Beirut, you know, uh, and uh, in the al Hamidiya market in uh, Damascus or in some uh, uh, nice, uh, you know, cafes in Ramallah or in Gaza. And uh, I think that, you know, I would like for that to be the vision of, uh, you know, people from this region feeling at home at once another, you know, and not feeling, not living the life beyond, behind the fences and the walls. Wow. So we will end with these words and we will say amen. And thank you so much, Ksenia, for joining us today for the New Books Network. And thank you so much for writing the book, Reporting the Middle East on High Heels. Hopefully, hopefully very soon in English too. Thank you very much, Ikir. Thank you for this fantastic interview. It was a pleasure to be, uh, to be here.